I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman, and today I am joined by someone I've admired from afar for so many years, so it's a pleasure to be able to talk to her um, for the podcast. Marie Myung Oak Lee is a Korean-American writer and author of the young adult novel Finding My Voice, thought to be one of the first contemporary set Asian-American YA novels. She's one of a handful of American journalists who have been granted a visa to North Korea since the Korean War. She's a founder of the Asian-American Writers Workshop and teaches creative writing at Columbia. She lives in New York City with her family, and her new novel is called Evening Hero. Welcome, Marie. Oh, Maris, the, the excitement is all mine. I'm so Yay. excited to meet you. I'm mine. <laughs> I know. It's so it's when you hear someone's voice, it really changes everything. Um, I, I, maybe we can start out by you by asking you to explain what Evening Hero means in this book and um, naming conventions, naming conventions, perhaps in uh, in Korea as a as a, a broader subject. Sure. And it's actually a great map of the thousand names that this book has had because it's changed protagonist. It was actually called when we sold it, it was called the first son or first son or first son, which was it was more about the evening hero, Yungman Kwok's son. So Yungman Kwok, oh. yeah, it was there was all sorts of different names that we actually even consulted in a Ouija board. None of them worked. But then at some point, so Korean names, uh, when they are traditionally done, like Myung-ok, my name, Myung means brilliant and Ok means crystal. And it's done on this really groovy system that usually the grandparents pick and it's a 12 year cycle. So a lot of times when I meet someone else who has Myung in their name and they're a lot younger, they'll joke, oh, we're all 36 years old or whatever. You can kind of tell like what generation a person is. And it also connects you to your family. So my sister's name is Chung Ok. Um, she is a like pure crystal. 
So Yongman's name, I wasn't even sure what it was for the longest time. And Yongman is kind of a weird Korean name, but his name has been the same since I started this book in 2004. And eventually I kind of thought, why don't I, and there's also, you don't know what the name means unless you see the underlying Chinese character. So there's so like, um, young can mean dragon. Um, it can mean all sorts of things. And it wasn't until I looked at, and like Youngman's wife's name is Young A, and her name is actually easier to parse because it's a woman's name. So Young means like pure and A means love. But when I started looking at what does man mean? Because I only think of it as meaning a thousand. Um, evening and hero was one of was two things that came up. And I'm not 100% sure. So I was having this talk with my friend Heinz Inzu Fenkel, who knows a lot more about Korean naming traditions. He grew up in Korea. We had some slight uh, arguments about it. He's like, yeah, I'm not sure about the Hanjamat. But then later he wrote back and said, you know, it's really, really weird. When I looked at these really weird old oracle bones, he said that Yongman could also mean he saw like this Chinese character of a woman with an X at her stomach. And he said, it could also mean like OBGYN. <laughs> Oh my gosh. I know. Oh, there you so go. Said, yeah. So he said, okay, we'll leave it because you picked that name for some weird reason. And it seems to be the right reason. So that's, then I was like, oh, that felt so good. Like that's the title. And nobody, everyone thought it was great. Cause for a while it was like, I think I had like, um, you know, like alienation was one of them. And everyone was like, oh no, it sounds like he's from Mars. I mean, we said so many titles that everybody rejected, including me. But then when I said the evening hero, everyone said, this is perfect because it is about a man in his later life is, and can he make these decisions to do the right thing versus these are decisions that we, we normally make to ignore it. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And it's just a side thing that it speaks so much to young men's um, immigrant experience um, coming to, well, eventually to Minnesota in the 60s. In that one, um, of course, in English, it looks like um, his name is Young Man. Exactly. Which is ironic. And then, of course, his last name is perfectly ripe for a frenemy to call him Dr. Quack. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And then, but then he chooses William and he doesn't understand where Bill is coming from. So the name <laughs> thing just kind of follows him everywhere. And of course, then uh, Jungman's son gets to have one of the greatest names in literature, I'm going to say. <laughs> Do you want to tell Einstein Alfred Nobel Quack. Let's put I mean, all our aspirations into one name. I love it. Um, and yeah, so so Dr. Kwok has been an OBGYN at this um, tiny hospital for many, many years. And suddenly he's forced to retire. And when someone spends their entire life striving, what the hell do you do when you don't have to go to work anymore? Exactly. And so he ends up deciding he thinks he's going to, he wants to do good. He's always wanted to be a missionary. And then Einstein is also an OBGYN. He fulfilled all of Youngman's demands. He went to Harvard Medical School. And now he's at some weird bro startup at the Mall of America. 
So he's like, here, dad, you can have this job. And young mom thinks he's going to at least be doing vaccines at vaccines are us. But he ends <laughs> up doing laser pubic hair depilations for minimum wage. But then he ends up not knowing what else he can do. So he kind of does it for a while. Depilation Nation. <laughs> what a great name for a business. It sounds like you really had a lot of fun uh, coming up with this semi-dystopian kind of world that's that revolves around medicine in the mall. And it, But it was a little bit scary that some of the stuff started coming true. Yeah. You have to revise it a little bit. This book take me 18 years. And I do have to do a shout out to my friend, Catherine Mann, who's passed away, but she came up with the best um, she came up with the best chain, which is where you go for your psychopharmaceuticals, you go to Dome Depot. She came up with the best one. <laughs> I do love that. And it, it just seems like such a natural follow-up to, a, you You set the scene of Jungman's life in the hospital so well, and you kind of see the shift that like MDs used to run hospitals and then they bring in MBAs. And by the time we're towards the end of the novel, we're doctorpreneurs. And you know, my son is very medically fragile. And a lot of that just came from having to be in the hospital all the time and thinking, wait, why do they do this? Why do they wake him up in the middle of the night just to go, can I check your pulse? Like, and then it ends up being, there is no reason for it. There is no reason for the things that they do. And then it costs a lot. It's so absurd. Even just the idea of thinking of health as a business first and foremost, again, we're, we are creeping there for sure. But I, I do love this idea that in Jungman's world, even many people would say that universal health care is too much like socialism. Right. Which is next to communism. Yes. And then exactly. look what happened with communists in and the North. And look what happened with communists. Um, which, which is a great way to, to um, kind of go back to Jungman's history in Korea. I, I was really struck by this line that the narrator says halfway through the book, I would say. Um, the opposite of war isn't peace, it's more war. Tell me about that. I've actually, while well, doing all the research, really wondered why more sort of war analysts don't think of it as genocide. Because for instance, 99% of the North was bombed, but 96% of the South was bombed by the allies. And if you, if you just looked at the millions of people who died on both sides, um, all the kids were orphaned. It's, we called it a police action because literally Truman didn't ask for permission to go in. He just went in. But we don't we don't think about there's been these mass graves or, you know, all the all the Americans who died. It's just they call it, we call it the forgotten war when actually it was this crazy genocidal war. And that that's one of the reasons I wanted to the play. There is a like a scene, as you've seen, where there was a place where Koreans kind of could come and hang out and just be Korean as they were used to, because it was actually the U.S. who partitioned north into south. And that was kind of the idea of that is what the opposite of war is, is, is you're just Korean. But then the forces that kind of came in didn't allow Koreans just to be Koreans, even though that's what they wanted. So that to me, that was some of the saddest stuff to write is when they had started dismantling it in the name of peace because of the armistice. So right. that, that's not peace either. The armistice was never peace. The war is still going on technically. 
you, you sign a treaty or you draw a line and yet uh, people still die. Yeah. And then, you know, the allies, they just go, bye. <laughs> That's kind of, and it's still, you know, it's still kind of occupied there. And there's still so much, you know, even what we've seen today with the anti-Asian violence, like what happened in Georgia, we don't stop to think about so much of that began during Korea yeah. because the Americans demanded that they have prostitutes, you know, to kind of satisfy the soldiers and so forth. No one really thinks about where did this originate, the idea of the Asian prostitute? Hmm, it was actually to help these nice soldiers. And that's mm -hmm. just kind of like, it's kind of dissonance that doesn't fit with the valorization of how we think of war or that even that war involves murder, things like that. Go figure. Um, and, and so, yeah, um, Jungmann gets to see firsthand how the Americans treat their women uh, when, when he works as a houseboy uh, during, during the occupation. And I will mention that everything I've done, because I don't, I don't want it to be didactic, but everything I've done has been gleaned from oral histories of survivors. And that was one of the ideas that, you know, I've read all the books, like I'm a professor, but I also wanted to decenter it from the idea of, well, you know, this historian said this is what happened versus these people said this is what happened. And the, the cultural memory of people in Korea is so different because they went through it and it's not, oh, it's a secret. It's not the biological weapon things isn't a secret. They just lived through that. So it's just an mm -hmm. open thing that's happened or the mass graves, the assassinations, just everything like, you know, or the US have being like, oh, the official language of the occupation is English. Like that makes zero sense. But now you wonder like, why are all the signs in English in Korea? Why? That's why. Mm -hmm. Um. And, and then, of course, I, I, I want to move to the, to the last pages of your book to talk about your author's note, because I do think it's so challenging, what like a, a lifelong challenge to um, be historically accurate when you're writing fiction, when you're writing something that didn't happen, but it did. Tell me how you managed that. I tried to interview as many people as possible and then really try to get in on a lot of the scholarship of like Monica Kim's book in particular, the interrogation rooms of the Korean war, where he thought, oh, that is so weird. Like the whole idea of, you know, when we see the Manchurian candidate, we're like, oh, brainwashing, North Korea invented that. No, no, no. It's like the complete opposite, wherein if you were a POW and you wanted to go to North Korea, you had to go through all this psyop stuff, like you're crazy. <laughs> That's the brainwashing part. Like, and the craziest thing in her book is that not only like, how did, you know, you think, how did they get interpreters? How did they get people in the US who spoke Korean? Oh, let's use formerly interned Japanese Americans who are doing this under duress, speaking to Koreans in the colonial language. And that, you know what I mean? Like the US army thought there was nothing wrong with this. So there, and one thing, the other thing I thought was really interesting is when I first heard about like the powders and everyone just said, oh, the powders fall down out of the oh. sky. And I thought, oh, that's weird. And you know, there've been, there've been some other weird shows about like the guy who got, um, the guy who got assassinated by the CIA and, and this, the, the sort of, throwaway thing was that he was actually working on Korean War, possible biological weapons, but we don't really think about that. And then when Nicholson Baker wrote his book about FOIA, he did a lot about the um, biological weapons during the Korean War. And so I couldn't help going like, oh, look at this. I showed him part of my novel. And he said, wait, how did you know all this? I said, I don't know all this. Um, I asked people. And so his, his research, what he jacked out of the CIA matched my research. But then also when I saw, when I saw Bong Joon-ho's um, movie the host again 
And that's one that's very metaphorical to the U.S. occupation, where it was also based on a true story, where the, the U.S. was like, we have all this formaldehyde, let's dump it into the sacred Han River. And the Koreans are like, could you not? And they just did it. So in his movie, it, it creates like this weird Godzilla-like monster that rampages all around. But there's this weird scene, which I hadn't noticed earlier when I watched it, where there's like this demonstration and then there's this very calm voice going, just please disperse, everything's fine. You just need to go home now, la la. And then there's this weird cloud that's coming from the sky and people are like falling down, having seizures. Exactly how I remembered, you know, like how I saw it in my mind or, you know, from interviewing people. But then I realized, oh, wait, in Korea, this is just cultural memory. <laughs> this is just people remembering what happened, where to me, I'm like, oh, like we dug all this out, like Nicholson Baker dug all this out through CIA. But actually, that's how we see it. That's not how the Koreans see it. So that helped me a little bit more in terms of how do I get into young man's lived experience seeing this stuff? And also to some degree, my parents, because my parents don't, um, especially my mother, she like she went to North Korea with me when I went on this trip. And then I realized she doesn't actually understand like the geopolitics of what happened. But then I thought, well, why should she? Like she was too busy like playing for her life and she was yeah. just a teenager. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, you think like, oh, now she must magically understand everything about the Korean War, <laughs> okay. which she does not. Like, she barely right. understands, you know, that it was partitioned in 45 and not during the Korean War, even though she ran across the DMZ in 45. So that just helped me texturize, like, what would happen? Like, if you didn't really understand what's going on or just even... I had to contact a relative I found through, get this, through Ancestry.com, because I thought, oh, is this a scam or not? But when I said, where, where's your family from? They were from the same part of North Korea um, that one side of my family's from. And I said, do you know, during the evacuation, did they really like run out in their straw shoes, like barefoot? And he said, yeah. He said, they just had tough little feet. Like how else? <laughs> you can... But you know what I mean? Like as an American yeah. and I'm, I get cold. I'm very hot right now because it's over 88 degrees. Right, right. Just like thinking of, and they didn't have insulate. They just like ran up, but what else are you going to do? And that just helped me get kind of into the texture of trying to write it from my point of view, you know, trying to get in their point of view yeah. of the survivors. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I think I, until I read this book, it didn't really hit home for me how much that line constantly shifted. Um, exactly. You know, the Ken Burns, <laughs> let me call this one out. Okay. The, his, his Vietnam thing was like, oh, Korea presaged this. And look at, here's the 38th parallel, la la. And I was like, no, it was not the 38th parallel. It was the military demarcation line, which right. was really different. Where I just felt like, look, could you have your breath soon? Like, take two seconds <laughs> to look at this. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, this is people's lives that got so, Im you know, immeasurably affected by where this line was. And, and you know, so much of it was this goofy, like, well, we want this part to be in the South. So we're going to make the line really low here, really high here. And gerrymandering. And, exactly. And who cares who lives there? Who cares this line is going right through this farmer's field and now it's full of mines. Nobody cares. Yeah. And then, of course, you do such a good job of, um, you know, th this is a great explainer for why Jungman might be a little quiet, a little head down, a little um, not very emotional. And a little cynical about a you lot know. of things that he's seen. Yes. And then, of course, with, with his son, we get to see this violent contrast. <laughs> 
Exactly. Because how is he, how is Einstein supposed to know that his father trekked all with his bare feet? And then he can still complain about why can't I get my inheritance early? Doesn't that make sense? He doesn't understand why his dad gets so mad or that their son is so spoiled. And so in some ways that was kind of like the fun, a fun thing to write. And you definitely had fun writing Einstein's wife. I could tell. <laughs> Maybe a little too much fun. Yes. <laughs> a classic shrill white woman. Um, but, but, but I, I do think it, it's fascinating to think of, I mean, we talk about tiger moms now um, that the um, parenting styles, not only from Korea to the U S but like in terms of people who are living day to day versus people who are somewhat secure, how, how much that changes um, how one parents. Oh, definitely. And I, I kind of feel a little bit like people of my generation who are second generation, our parents lived through all the tumultuous the colonization and the war. We had the sort of double thing where, you know, for instance, my parents are both migrants. Like my father grew up in Pyongyang and my mother grew up like in a more rural area and they had to migrate to South Korea. And then after the war, then they came here and then they're in Jim Crow, Alabama, like with all that trauma. So to some degree, it's not only the immigration and the difference, but then it's the trauma on top of it where they don't have an outlet for a lot of, or a way to process what they've been through and what they've seen. So it gets dumped on the children or passed down to the children, no matter how good a parent they can be. And there's just, you know, there's a couple small giveaway scenes where young man admits that he's hit Einstein before, but there's also, you know, in Korea, it's actually kind of more okay to hit your kid. And at the same time in the U S that's child abuse. And at the same time, young man has a lot of triggers given what he's seen. So you, but that Einstein doesn't know that. So it's, it's constant trauma for him as well, even though he's supposedly the better off child because right. he had to grow up with any of this. Um, and, and then we get to the third generation. Um, <laughs> Where's my iPhone? <laughs> and Reggie, the, the thing that really struck me about Jungman's um, grandson is that, yeah, we now get, get to have such a cushy life that like, it doesn't matter if we strive. And it, I mean, and how wonderful is that? And how awful at the same right. time? I just love the, yeah, I'll just inherit it. Or, you know, probably now if it were Mark Contemporary, he'd be like, I'll just become a YouTube star. Yeah. It's very different than the whole Horatio Alger. I'm going to work myself to the bone to try to succeed that young man has had to do for 40 years. And it kind of at the end hasn't worked out super well for him either. And I mean, both both extremes are bad. And I, I think it's such a common immigrant story, like the Sacklers. You, this book made me think of the Sackler family. That oh wow, the uh, original patriarch had this work ethic that didn't allow him any time to do anything but work. And by by the third generation, <laughs> they're just spending money. Um, you know. Um, oh, that's so true. Because I actually put Cats in the Cradle on my playlist for Large Hearted Boy. <laughs> I listened to to get in the mood because it's all you're doing it for your family. But in some ways, you're depriving yourself. You're depriving your family of yourself. And how does that work out? And that's like a, a whole different 
work-life balance question. Um, yeah, exactly. But I don't know if you've ever felt the idea of like, you got to work so hard, you're almost afraid to look up. And that's kind of the emotion that I felt with young man. Like he can't even like look up to enjoy anything because he's too busy just working. And I just, I feel that very directly because I feel like that's kind of my work ethic too, unfortunately. I, I, I do think that we at least have the vantage point to see that it's not ideal. Right, right, right. I should look up once in a while. This doesn't feel right. <laughs> Touch grass. Um, and then of course, um, some people look to religion to find that meaning in life. And Jungman has a very complicated relationship both with Christianity and uh, his ancestral religion. Definitely. And my parents have the same, my parents are actually both very Christian. Um, and then the ironic thing is ever since I was a little kid, I don't know why, you know, even growing up in Rome, Minnesota, there's no other Buddhist, but I knew it was Buddhist. I would meditate and do all this stuff. And now I, I do a lot of ancestor worship. Like it was my father's birthday yesterday. And this really bugs my mom, but I'm kind of appreciating the fact that uh, people like Heinz or people who know Korean religion said, this is very weird. You're actually reverting back to this. There's a name for it too, this primal Korean religion that involves plant worship and Buddhism. <laughs> I think in Korea, it's, it's a lot cooler. You can just be kind of pan, pan religious and it's all really cool. And so I just feel very comfortable and happy with it. And then, so it was kind of fun trying to see, you know, through a more gimlet eye, looking at Christian, the Christianity of my parents with a little more cynical eye of young man, because he does not having, like, why would you eat someone's bones and drink their blood? Like, actually, when you think about it, that's really weird, right? You know, <laughs> my parents are so in, my parents are so into the religion, especially the things like speaking in tongues and stuff that I still don't get. But also what you're seeing too, is that most people who immigrate were because like, sort of like with young men that they learn English through the missionaries, the missionaries mm -hmm. came to convert people and they wanted, this is all for conversion prop purposes, but that also means that the people who are lucky enough to immigrate tend to be Korean. So everyone thinks, oh, Koreans are super Christian. We're actually, that's probably about like 10, 12% of the actual population. So you're not, you're just not seeing, you're not seeing it the right way, but here in the U S all you see in the, you know, when you go to in LA, it's like these mega churches and stuff. Yeah. Um, and then of course, as Jungman has, has spent his life with his head down, his wife has to, wants to find meaning in the Christian Korean community wh where they live in Minnesota. Tell me about that a little bit. I think it's kind of like, because they've had, they've lived in all white Minnesota for so long. She wants to reclaim some of that before it's too late. And they're just goofy things that they do, like copying out the Bible. Like there's this very weird sort of almost cultish things. And I think she ends up feeling, seeing some of that through young man's eyes, some of the hollowness of this piousness, especially the way they treat North Korea. Like it's so evil. It's this godless place. And they're both from North Korea. So I think she right. can see a little bit of that. And then also this is very common to many of the mothers of um, my friends is we had brilliant mothers who could have done anything. And then they ended up raising us here in the US where no one wants to talk to them because they have an accent or they don't speak English. And so much of that frustration of them not being able to fulfill themselves also fell to us children. Like we felt it. 
And so I kind of wanted to honor that to some degree because what happens when history makes it so like for my own mother, like the fact that she never finished college is such a huge thing where, you know, I went through a period of my life where I said, well, you survived the Korean war. Like isn't survival the best thing, but then I'm saying like, it's like, it's a normal thing for her. She never finished college and that was really important to her. So she never got to do what she wanted to do. So I'm in a weird way, this book helped me just understand my parents better as well as I was kind of writing it, which is kind of, yeah. Hmm. That's love. Have have they read it? Or have they? Um, well, my father's passed away. And I, I had dementia. But oh. um, the other thing too is that I was talking about. I was talking to this with a Korean friend though. Um, just the, oh, because my launch was at the Korean Society. Someone asked me this great question, and they said my mother will not before previously too will not read. She's very fluent in English. Like she was fluent before she came here. She was very educated. She never reads any of my stuff unless. Um, her Korean friend at church says, oh, I saw Marie's like piece in the New York Times. It was so good. And then she'll grudgingly read it and not give me any feedback. And then my other, (laughs) my conversation partner said that was the same for her. Her mother has not read any of her stuff. So I don't know if it's a, I don't know what it is. I think part of it is my parents really want to be a doctor. And I kind of blew that one away for that. I think what has happened to me is not what my parents would expect has expected of me. And so they think it's, I think they just think it's weird (laughs) what I do. which is so funny and universal (laughs) right I mean when we started the Asian American Writers Workshop like half the dudes were like coming out and they didn't know what was worse coming out as gay or coming out as a writer you're saying like the whole parental (laughs) expectation yeah and that was just our little sanctuary to to kind of have our own like little group therapy session what to do when you don't become well but then i will also mention i interviewed so many doctors so many korean american doctors who said oh i actually don't literally know why i became a doctor but it's too late like they cannot turn the ship around do you know what i'm saying like i i know i could have forced myself to become a doctor and i would have been like that too because sure. I, I would i couldn't have turned the ship around either it's like the titanic <laughs> it's like once you go to medical school and so forth so to some degree i really understand that because it did i was able to force myself to do many things you know like learn calculus <laughs> despite my own hatred of it so i'm just grateful that despite you know my parents just love me and that's not what they wanted for me and they tried very hard to dissuade me of it but one thing i will say when my father passed away he gave me his diaries and in the diaries he had these beautiful things where he said he wanted to be a writer and he actually had these cute little vignettes in the elevator. Hello, Dr. Lee. How are you, Dr. Reynolds? I am fine. How are you? Closed door. You know what I'm saying? What an inheritance. Right. Isn't that crazy that he never said the whole time when I was typing away when I was nine, going, I always wanted to be a writer. He was like, no, you cannot become a writer. We did not come to this country. Like I almost starved during the Korean war. Like that was his way of love because I really feel like they just wanted me to be secure. And so I'm kind of, I'm really, really sad because among other things, I was asked to speak at Yale medical school, which is totally Hogwarts. It's beautiful. (laughs) Um, And my father gave me for my fifth birthday, uh, these giant, like disgust, Discussing is not the right word. Um, dissection pictures that Vesalius has done. He was the first person who thought, let's open up the human body, but it's like flayed people. I'm five years old. The book is larger than I am. And so I'm re- I was just really sad that my father couldn't see me like, oh, look, here I am by this portrait of Vesalius. And I still made it to Yale Medical School without going to medical school. I just wish I could have been there for that. You would have loved it. That's incredible. Um, so as a writer, you have to then um, be 
more um, invested than ever in in the books you read. So tell tell me what books. Oh, you definitely. Read. And th this has been such an amazing season. I just feel like I can't keep up with it. I don't know if you can even see. Like I've got this crazy pile. Um, the book I'm reading right now is Dan Chan's Sleepwalk, and I my favorite reading is um, you know how like with writing it's all comps like this is you know mm -hmm. the, you can compare this book is like the great Gatsby but with zombies <laughs> like there has to be a comparable thing I enjoy books the best when they're not comparable so Sleepwalk um, by J Dan Sean is I've just kind of started it but it's this very weird road trip that seems dystopian and it also seems like it has to do with genealogy and adoption and burner phones have you read it? You're not. I have. Head. There, there are <laughs> similarity. I, I think, I think your book and his book could take place in the same semi dystopian, semi future, but like maybe too much right now kind of. <gasps> That's so fun because we are actually going to do an event together. He just reached out on Twitter because we have the same we have the same pub date because mine got moved because the supply chain. So I thought that was really cute. So I'm like, yes. And then that my other book that I'm reading is my friend um, and AAWW co-founder, Christina Chu. Her book is called Beauty. And I've always felt kind of mad and sad because it came out during the pandemic. Mm. And it's such a crazy book about fashion and legacy. I can't, and there's like an antique involved and there's kind of crazy. It's a fierce book that I also have no comp for. I cannot explain it. It's just an incredibly fierce book with a really satisfying ending and it's multi-generational. And I learned a lot about brand names. Oh. So what more could you ask for a book where I feel like I'm very conversant in fashion, which is actually something I'm not interested in, but because of the book, I just loved it so much. So thank you That's for, for asking. <laughs> <laughs> well, Marie, this has been wonderful. The Evening Hero is out now. Thank you so much, Maris. This is a I love talking to you. I love talking to you. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.